Hello and welcome to episode 1970 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. I went out to get some tea before we started recording and my wife was on a Zoom meeting at work and I just overheard her saying something and I wasn't sure what the context was, but I heard her saying, I'm not the biggest baseball fan, but there's one baseball fan I really, really love and his name is Shohei Otani. And when I need to be cheered up, I just go to Twitter or Instagram and I look up Shohei Otani. He's always smiling and he's always laughing and he's so nice and such a good natured guy. I didn't know why she was talking about Shohei Otani on a work-related meeting. And then I found out later that they were doing an icebreaker and the question was who you would invite to dinner (laughs) so her answer was Shohei Otani so Shohei Otani you have a standing invitation to attend dinner with uh, me and Jesse anytime (laughs) would you ask him if he has contemplated a contract extension with the Los Angeles Angels because I know that was something he uh, had to answer for today in camp I don't think I would I don't think I would invite him to dinner and then subject him to questions about his contract. <laughs> We'd keep it light and, and casual. We wouldn't even have to talk about baseball, let alone his financial situation, because judging by his answer to those questions, uh, he's uh, not ready to reveal his yeah. plans, nor should he be. Yeah, you can talk to him about his sharp suits and his new shoes. <laughs> yep. Anyway, that might have been my answer to that question, too. <laughs> so <laughs> good to know that Jesse and I are on the same page. Oh, you really found each other. <laughs> yeah. We're bonded through our, our mutual love for each other and also for Shohei Otani. <laughs> Almost as strong. So we are doing a preview pod today. We're going to be talking about the Seattle Mariners with Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times and later the Chicago White Sox with James Fegan of The Athletic, and I can now tell you what the playoff odds for the Mariners and the White Sox are, because the Fangraphs playoff odds have been released, just as Baseball Prospectus's Pakoda playoff odds and projected standings were released this week as well. So this is playoff odds week at the Sabermetric sites. So the Mariners currently projected for 83.5 wins and given a 48% chance to make it back to the playoffs. And the White Sox, 79.2 projected wins and a 27.8% chance to make the playoffs. So none of those numbers is as high as the fans of those teams would like them to be, I am sure. But nice to be able to put the playoff odds out there now. And those are a combination of the zips and steamer projection systems and the roster resource projected playing time. So I just have a a couple observations about those numbers. The first one, I think, is that the projected playoff fields by the fan graphs, depth charts and projections are exactly the teams that made the playoffs last year. (laughs) So (laughs) we've had a busy active offseason and players have uh, gone hither and yon. And now that the dust has almost settled, it's the same field of 12 teams projected to make the playoffs with some slight differences. I I was going to say. Yeah, the differences to seedings and such. The difference is that there's one division winner from last year that is not projected to win its division this year, and that's your Los Angeles Dodgers. Yes. Who have been supplanted and leapfrogged by your San Diego Padres at the top of the projected NL West standings. But yeah, it's the Yankees, Guardians, Astros, Braves, Cardinals, Padres, and then in the AL, I think it would be Rays, Blue Jays, Mariners, 
and then in the NL Mets Dodgers uh, Mets Dodgers. That's Dodgers. <laughs> I have somehow oh, conflated the listen, two teams. <laughs> the Padres don't get that many roster spots. No, <laughs> they just form one super team. <laughs> yeah. So the I Mets. I love in that scenario that there is a Southern California super team that excludes the Angels. <laughs> right, yeah. Mets, uh, Dodgers, and Phillies. I think have the highest projected playoff odds for non-projected division winners. But yeah, yeah, it amounts to the the same teams again. Not that there's usually a a ton of turnover from one year to the next. I mean, usually the teams that were good last year, the projections are based in large part on what happened last year. So it's not that much of a shock that most of those teams would still be projected to be successful. And obviously, even though those may be the leading candidates, either projection system would say that we're not likely to get the exact same mix of teams that we got last year, even if they're the favored teams. Odds are that some of the favorites uh, will not end up making the playoffs again. Right. Yeah. This is when we remind everyone that, you know, one of the things that we have not yet figured out how to do, and when we figure out how to do it, I don't know that baseball projections are the right use for it, is that we can't, we can't anticipate perfectly attrition or addition to a roster, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have an understanding of how healthy guys have been and injuries and what have you in the past. And obviously there is a playing time projection as you, as you noted, baked into these, but you know, if the Dodgers who are projected for fewer than 90 wins for the first time since we have begun calculating playoff odds (laughs) and projected win totals in 2014, you know, if they go out at the deadline and add a bunch of impact big league talent, obviously our projections aren't accounting for potential future impact talent that might come to the to the thing, right? Mm-hmm. We tend to do a little bit of a disservice to teams that have a tremendous amount of depth in the high minors, right? So like mm-hmm. there, are, there are blind spots that the projections have, ones that I think you know, we are aware of and we hope that people keep in mind when they're thinking through, ah, I can't believe, you know, how (laughs) everyone sounds Mm -hmm. when they get angry. But I think that when I look at this, like there isn't a squad on here where I'm like, well, that seems wrong. Like none of these made me go, hey, David, you sure we got something right here? Mm -hmm. I think that in instances where you have teams that are really strong and very good that have a a lower projection than you might anticipate. A lot of that is due to them playing in a really hard division, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people have noted, and this was true when BP released Pakoda, and I think it was true today when we released our playoff odds that not a single team in the AL East projects from even 90 wins for us, right? Let alone more than 90. And you might say, well, that's ridiculous. They got some they got some good teams. Well, yeah, they got a bunch of good teams. That's the problem. They got to play each other even if they play each other a little less than they have in years past. So, yeah, and then, you know, guys will be good who we don't anticipate being good. Guys will get hurt who we think will play a full year's worth of innings or, or plate appearances. You know, stuff will change between now and when the season closes, but this is this is our guess right now, and I think it's mm-hmm. a pretty well-informed one. Yeah, and there's not a single team that has 0% playoff odds. <laughs> Every team is at least at 0.1%, rounding up to 0.1. So, we, Yeah, we um, 
I, I think that we received and heard the feedback that Zero suggested a, a finality before the season had even begun that people thought both did not reflect the math and mm-hmm. also was a bummer. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, so there are six teams that have zero percent World Series odds. Yeah. But you know. we're not expecting a lot from the Rockies or the Reds or no the Pirates, Tigers, A's, Rockies, Nats, yeah. Reds, Pirates. Yeah, <laughs> they're in the zero percent World Series odds club. But stranger things have happened, I guess. Have they? I'm having to weigh whether stranger things have happened than one of those teams winning the World Series this year. Probably, maybe, at least uh, in the world, if not the world of baseball. I did just compare Pakoda to the Fangraphs playoff odds because, you know, somewhat similar methodologies uh, just in principle at the core, but some significant differences here. And Pakoda has some higher highs and lower lows in terms of the projected win totals, maybe because it's just one projection system instead of an amalgamation of two potentially. So a little bit of a, a wider range there, but I look for the bigger differences uh, if you're someone who's looking for a reason for optimism about a team that one of these projection <laughs> yeah, uh, you can you can do some uh yeah it's some cherry shopping. pick yeah, yeah you can cherry pick your <laughs> yeah i, I really believe you know i think pakota's onto something with uh <laughs> with those mets but it's got right. you know it, it's definitely wrong about the cardinals you know yeah so the teams with uh, a double digit percentage point Differential. So these are the teams that the Fangraphs playoff odds are higher on than the Pakota base playoff odds. Top of the list, the Giants, where the Fangraphs odds are about 21 percentage points higher. So Fangraphs has the Giants with like a 41% chance and and BP just has them with a 19% chance. The Mariners, uh, the team we're about to talk about, Fangraphs higher on the Mariners to the tune of almost 20 percentage points also, the Rangers, though, about 20 percentage points, Fangraphs is higher on. Cardinals, 18 points. Rays, 13 points. Braves, 13 points. And White Sox, the other team that we're going to talk about today, about 13 percentage points. So if you thought that uh, those projections were a little depressing for the Mariners and the White Sox, well, just get a load of the Pakota projections for those teams. <laughs> but, and then <laughs> it gets worse. <laughs> it does. These are the teams that Pakota's method was higher on than Fangraph's method by 10 percentage points or more. The Dodgers. So Pakota still pretty high on the Dodgers. Yeah. Pakota still has the Dodgers at the top of the NL West. And they have the Dodgers with a 26 percentage point higher playoff odds, but still only like, well, I guess in their case, it's like a 95% chance that the Dodgers will make the playoffs. It's more iffy whether they'll win the division. Then the Twins, BP is higher on by about 24 percentage points. Phillies, 16. Guardians, 16. Angels, 16. Yankees, 15. And the Brewers and Astros, 11 percentage points apiece. So it's not like, you know, enormous differences. We're talking about 20, 25 percentage points at the max. So there's a general agreement, I would say. Yeah. I mean, I think that mostly, mostly, Ben, this goes to show Craig's pro Dodgers bias, you know, (laughs) sticking his thumb on that scale. Mm -hmm. You'll notice... Didn't do that for the Mariners at the old fangrass. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes, you are the impartial, unbiased managing editor and 
Craig is, is just putting his thumb on the scale over there. Yeah, the <laughs> differences kidding. in terms of uh, World Series odds between the two methods. So the World Series odds, uh, obviously, no team has super high chances to win the World Series. And so these differences are going to be smaller. But biggest difference in terms of a team that Fangraphs is higher on than BP, it's the Braves. 9.3 percentage points. So that's a pretty big gap. I mean, the Fangraphs playoff odds and projections think that the Braves are the best team in baseball, right? It, or at least will have the most wins. And then the Padres, Fangraphs is higher on about five percentage points higher, which is in line with what we were saying about BP still being high in the Dodgers. Right. And then the Rays, uh, about four percentage points, and the Cardinals, three percentage points. So those are the teams that Fangraphs likes better than BP. Mariners are next at about two percentage points higher for Fangraphs. And then on the other end, teams that BP is higher on, Dodgers, again, eight percentage points higher World Series odds for BP, followed by the Yankees at about five, the Twins at about three, the Mets at about three, the Astros at about three, and then the Guardians and the Phillies uh, rounding to two. So, yeah, I guess the Dodgers-Padres difference would maybe be the biggest one comparing the two systems. But, again, it's uh, not like anyone thinks that one team is going to be terrible and the other side thinks that it's going to be great. You don't generally get that kind of disagreement and disparity. Yeah, it's unusual for them to be so divergent. And so, yeah, it's, again... None of these make me go, oh, no, somebody broke something. (laughs) Right. Which, uh, you know, having been behind playoff odds uh, in the past myself, in the distant past, there were definitely times where we would see the first run of something and go, hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, stuff like that is always, I think, uniquely disquieting for me because I have no ability to fix it. You know, like Mm -hmm. when I get copy that's in shambles, which doesn't happen very often because everyone writes for the site Really excellent but mm-hmm. i'm like i have the skill set to to help shepherd this along hopefully mm-hmm. when something breaks in the database you know or the site doesn't load for whatever reason i'm just sitting there at the mercy of god and sean dolinar but he's <laughs> right. good at fixing things so it works out okay yeah and it's always a question or it was for me about how much do you want to intervene i mean you you obviously want to find out if there's a, a problem if there's a bug of some sort but just something looking out of line with your own expectations, well, that might not be a bug. That might be a feature. That's why we have projection systems, right? It's not just going with our gut and what we think. So you always have to question, like, am I just uh, looking for a reason to shift this closer to expectations? And then you end up with hurting and it's close to the conventional wisdom because you probably generally think and expect that the projections will be somewhat close to conventional wisdom for a lot of teams, if anything, because our conventional wisdom is informed by projections at all times now but you would also want some surprises or there wouldn't be much point in having projections or much utility to them so something just looking out of line might mean that the projections are picking up on something that we should be paying more attention to so you don't want to monkey with the system too much and inject uh, manual subjective personal opinions because you could end up making things less accurate instead of more Right, exactly. And you know, generally you just want you just want it to let it let it breathe, let it mm-hmm. do its thing, you know? Yeah. 
I do wonder what projections Masson, the broadcast network, was looking at because I, I saw a quote in a Dan Connolly piece for The Athletic about how Masson is continuing not to broadcast many Orioles or Nationals spring training games, mm-hmm. which has been the case for the past few years. And a Masson spokesperson responded to Dan's query with this comment. Masson looks forward to an exciting 2023 campaign of Orioles and Nationals baseball when the award-winning network will televise every available game of two dynamic MLB clubs destined to lead their leagues throughout the regular season. What? When the fans are watching and the games matter. Destined to lead their leagues throughout the regular season. (laughs) Destined. To do it, lead their leagues in what? Yeah, I, I guess is is one question, right? I mean, I don't know. Like, do they do their games start earlier than than the other teams' games? Is it like <laughs> that is the way in which they're leading? Are they leading in some sort of other obscure stat? In the Nationals' case, are they leading in losses? <laughs> that seems to quite possible. I don't know what that means. So destined to lead their leagues throughout the regular season, they they will be playing throughout the regular season. It's great that Orioles and Nationals fans can watch those games, but I don't know what they are destined to lead their leagues in. I'm sure we could find something for each of those teams that the Orioles are projected to lead their league in and and the Nationals are projected to lead their league in, right? There's got to be some statistical category that they are projected to to lead their respective leads in. So I guess there's just enough vagueness there that it could technically be true in some sense. It, I mean, there's always something, right? Yeah. There tends to be a kernel mm-hmm. of of something in there, but often mm-hmm. it is the goofiest possible kernel. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, I don't know, like uh, like rookie plate appearances or something for the Orioles, or or pit batter's face. I mean, there's probably something more encouraging for the Orioles than for the Nationals. But yeah, I don't know. Nominate what you think the Orioles and the Nationals are destined to lead their leagues in this season, and, and let us know. Make this Masson statement true. The <laughs> Orioles are destined to lead the league in Adley Rutschman plate appearances. <laughs> exactly. Hard to argue. Yep. All right. Well, let's get going with the previews and we will roll our first guest right in here. It's time to talk about the Mariners. So we are joined now by Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times to kick off the first segment of our preview pod today to cover the Seattle Mariners. Ryan, how are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm here in Arizona, and that's a little bit warmer than Montana, where I spend most of my off season. <laughs> Although we're doing our best down here to keep it as cold for folks as possible. The Mariners 2022, I think, could be considered a resounding success, right? They broke the playoff drought. They got to host a, a game, a playoff game in Seattle, even if it ended in a way that they didn't want to. And I think going into the offseason, there was a lot of excitement among their fan base that you know, we're going to keep moving forward and potentially challenge the Astros for the West. We'll talk about some of the individual moves that they made, and it's not as if they didn't make any, right? They signed some guys, they made trades to acquire some guys in short positions of need, but I think my sense of the general uh, sentiment in the Mariners fan base is that they expected a big, splashy signing. And while a lot of moves were made, many of which I think improved the club materially for 2023. I don't know that we would call like AJ Pollock or even Colton Wong splashy. And so I'm curious from your perspective, is the level of activity that we saw from this front office consistent with what you thought we would see or more, less? How does this compare to what you maybe thought, you know, when the season came to a close? 
Yeah, I guess it was kind of what I thought in the sense that, you know, if you look at the free agent class and the Mariners needs, obviously they weren't going to be in on Aaron Judge. It just wasn't going to be how it worked. And, you know, they needed outfield help, particularly with Mitch Haniger likely leaving by a free agency or coming back. But they still needed outfield help beyond that position. And so you look at the outfield, I didn't think that they'd want to spend a bunch of money on Brandon Nimmo. Uh, then you had Judge. Then you had guys like Ben Benintendi and stuff like that, who are not maybe the splashiest guys in the world. And then you had the shortstop class, which was really talented. But, you know, Jerry DePoto, it, three days after the season, said, look, we'd prefer to keep J.P. Crawford as our shortstop. Uh, if we look at these shortstop markets, we'd probably ask them to move, you know, to either third base or second base or however how they would do it. But that's kind of what their preference was. I think, you know, part of me has said before that, you know, it's easier to say that when you don't think you're going to be able to sign any of those guys anyways. You know, like we saw it a year ago, the Mariners did make a run at Trevor Story, offered the same money, uh, and he went to the Red Sox, um, or essentially the same money. Um, and then this year you look at the group, I think they knew pretty much everybody knew that Trey Turner just didn't really have any interest on staying on the West coast unless it was with the Dodgers. And, um, I think, you know, you look at some of the other ones, you know, Correa, they thought they'd be priced out of, and they initially were, they didn't love anything for Bogart so more than seven or eight years. Now they just weren't in a position where they really wanted to do that. So it's easy to say, yeah, we're not, we, we feel comfortable with JP when you don't have to, you know, it's like me saying, look, I feel really comfortable about never eating a salad again because I don't really want to, you know, it's just like, <laughs> but like, so that in that regard, there wasn't the splashy move out there, you know, their pitching staff is set. There wasn't that move. I guess you could have went first base DH, but you know, knowing how they think about that position and want to use it to, um, to rest guys and keep guys fresh. I just didn't see anything out there that big that they could have made the splashing move. So once Jerry reiterated the thing about shortstop, I was kind of like, yeah, they're not going to make a move contrary to what a lot of people hope for or believe they would do. And I think they're a victim of their own circumstance because Jerry kind of said at the end of the season too, like, look, we're going to go out and supplement on the free agent market, or we're going to supplement this team. And I think a lot of people felt like it automatically meant the free agent market. And that's not necessarily the case with them. We're going to be talking about a lot of players coming off injuries in our White Sox segment later in the episode, but the Mariners have a bunch of those too. And as you wrote in your spring training preview last week, the Mariners have multiple players reporting to camp after off-season surgical procedures. So that could be the newly extended Dylan Moore and Sam Haggerty and Cal Raleigh and Andres Munoz and Paul Seawald. So if you want to give us a little rundown of the injury updates that you've gotten now that camp has opened, that would be a, a good place to get going. Yeah. I, as far as I can tell, like all of those guys that had the offseason surgeries are pretty close to ready to go. Dylan Moore might be a little behind in terms of uh, some of the physical activity. You know, he had a, a it's not quite a sports hernia, but like um, and a torn ad, torn adductor muscle. So as you know, it's a core injury he had to have repaired, and he's the only one that's kind of truly behind. Andres Munoz and Paul Seawald. Munoz had a foot surgery to fuse a couple of bones together in his ankle. He's been throwing. I think he's going to get off the mound tomorrow. Seawald had a surgery to remove some loose bodies in his elbow. And then a little procedure on his heel. I think he had a bone spur on his heel. Nothing major. He's been throwing off the mound already. So both of those guys likely won't be starting. Like they like won't be pitching in the first couple games. They'll push him back a little bit. But the relievers, you know, they can get ready pretty quickly. 
Cal Raleigh's been catching bullpens, doing everything. He's 100% uh, fine after, you know, tearing the UCL in his thumb and playing with it for basically the last four weeks of the season. And then I'm trying to think, well, is there any most, um, any other surgeries? I think those are the main ones. And so I think they're all going to be close to full go or, you know, if not, maybe a week later uh, for spring training, like for the position players too, it's a, it's a long spring. So they don't necessarily, if they're not in games right away in the first week or two, it's not a big deal uh, for the Mariners. So, yeah, I think from a health standpoint, they all seem to be pretty good. Um, other well, and then the news came out yesterday that Taylor Trammell had broken his hamate bone yeah. uh, mm-hmm. in his right hand. He got hit by a, I think he got hit by a ball during a workout. I don't know if it was at driveline or where he was working out, but got hit in the hand and suffered a broken hamate. Usually, it's from swinging, so he's out about seven weeks. You know, they just go in and they remove that little kind of hook on there and everything, clean it up, uh, and he should be ready to go. But he was going to come in and kind of compete for some time in that left field spot. But that won't be the case now. I feel like Cal Raleigh should have gotten hazard pay for having to catch Munoz's <laughs> entire arsenal with a broken hand. That sounds Seriously, impossible yeah. to me. <laughs> One guy who isn't currently hurt but had kind of an up and down year because of injury was Ty France, uh, who you know had such a great start and then struggled at times after he came back from his own issues. So I know that he is not on the list of guys who were hurt, but where where is he right now and kind of what do you expect from him coming into this year? You know, I, I haven't seen Ty yet. I know he's been around, but I haven't seen him. They asked him to to drop some LBs. You know, he got a little heavy. Like, uh, I think a lot of people, as they get closer to 30, start to realize that your metabolism is a little, slows down a little bit, and you just can't eat exactly what you want, and Ty likes junk food. So they asked him to kind of clean it up a little bit, his diet, and just come in a little bit lighter. He might be the exception where he gains weight during the season. But, you know... I think he's healthy. I don't think the wrist issue, and, I, and in talking with the Ty and with the Mariners, you know, he got hit and he had a wrist issue diving for the ball, his left wrist, rolled right. over on it. Same thing he did the year before and was on the injured list. He missed a little time with that. But when he started to struggle, it wasn't necessarily because of the, that he was hurting. It was because teams figured out for a while there that if you throw it in on him, and execute a fastball properly underneath his hands, he is going to swing at it, and he can't really do much with it. He likes the ball out over the plate. It's one of the reasons why he gets hit so many times, because he's kind of diving out over the plate. And some people were able to execute and get it under his hands, and what he did was try and and try and offset that by making an adjustment and trying to hit that pitch instead of just letting it go. You know, with two strikes, you got to take a hack or try and foul it off. But what he wanted to do was like counter them trying to beat him there by beating them in that pitch. And he just didn't have the swing to do it. Kind of got in his head, you know, did some things differently because of that. And, you know, kind of got out of whack with his approach at the plate and what he wanted to do. So the Mariners, you know, kind of broke that data down and told them, hey, this is what they were doing. And this is what they're going to try and do again. And here's how you beat it. It isn't so much changing your swing or starting early or anything like that. It's don't swing at it, especially because a lot of them weren't strikes. And, you know, Ty has been a guy that can cover a lot of the plate and hit the ball and, and do something with it. But that's one area that's not a strike that he doesn't do a lot with. And his best his best weapon against it is not swinging. And so that's something I think he's really going to focus on this spring. 
big part of the Mariners' pushback to the postseason were the debuts of Julio and George Kirby and Julio winning the Rookie of the Year award and Kirby coming in sixth. So what expectations are that they could be even better in year two, two guys who looked pretty comfortable in the big leagues from the get-go and were just core contributors uh, from day one pretty much, but there's always some room for improvement, even with players who looked as, as polished and productive as they were. So what are the hopes for further strides in the sophomore seasons? Who do you want to start with, Julio or George first? Let's start with Julio. Julio's fun. Oh, yes, he is. Um, like, where do you really go with him? <laughs> right. You know, like, what? <laughs> hey, Julio, can you, you know, I mean, I guess, it, you know, especially if you, like, remove that first month of the season. Mm-hmm. And then there was that little stretch, and and I think about end of August where he was a little dinged up and right. maybe wasn't as productive. But, like, I guess you tell him, hey, just stay a little healthier. And that's, I guess, the big thing. Don't go to the home run derby with a sore wrist and then aggravate it uh, by hitting a gajillion bombs and becoming like a <laughs> national superstar. You know, it's it's like, where does this kid go from here? Is really, it's probably just a, a refinement of what he's done. You know, you look at that first month and it was a 35% strikeout where he might have been 40% and on a lot of pitches that weren't strikes. And yeah. so you remove that month maybe then you're looking at another small, you know, a different sample and what he could be. I mean, I guess you say, well, like 285 instead of 274 or 264, whatever he was. And maybe your OBP is a little better. I thought he was one of their better situational hitters. And I think that only gets better with, with time and experience, you know, the stolen bases. I mean, does, I would wonder if the, the changes make him more viable as a base dealer. You know, I know they, they dialed it back some when he was dinged up a little bit. And then the defensively, he was great. I guess it's like, where do you go from here? It's, it's getting, what is that old, you know, the whole coach speak. If you just get 1% better every day or something like that, when, well, if you're like at 98%, I guess it's 0.1%, you know, <laughs> but you know, that's, I guess the much, he already played with a pretty high maturity level to his game anyways. To me, it's just don't lose any of that. Don't lose the enjoyment that you have from playing. Don't lose, you know, that kind of childish, you know, the childlike aspect to it because that carries you a long time. And then along the way, hey, be a little smarter about when you're going to dive head first for something or something like that so you're on the field a little bit more. I'm not expecting him to, like, just start dogging it on ground balls to first, but, you know – you don't need to be diving head first in every stolen base or maybe dial it back if you're not feeling it, you know, and I think the Mariners will do a better job of protecting him physically as well. So I think that's the biggest thing is just kind of understanding that with all of his ability and all of his talent and the production that comes from all that, that the next step is just finding a way to be available more. And it, and really it was kind of flukish stuff. You know, he got hit in the forearm, you know, he slid into a base head first, hurt his wrist. I mean, like, the hand injuries and stuff, you, you can't necessarily avoid it all the time, but finding ways to protect those, I think, will be big. Kirby, obviously, you know, he's interesting. I just, like, you watch him and you're like, okay, like, this guy, you know, what does he, um, like, how does he do it? You know, he doesn't look big. He doesn't look like, you know, he doesn't look like a guy that's just, you know, a beast out there and you're like, okay, yeah, he's, this is why he throws a hundred and, you know, he's not a menacing guy. He looks like a golf pro, if anything. <laughs> and he goes out there and he, and he's pumping 96 and he's 
dotting up everything. You know, he throws exactly where he needs. You're like, okay, well, I get it now. I think for him, finding a way to navigate through this season, you know, make 28 starts coming off a year where you pitched double what you've ever pitched in the in a professional season before, I think will be big. You know, if he can, if he makes 28 starts, that's that's a really good player. Like with George, I just think it's hey, you know, be out there for it all. And can you make 28 starts? And can you, you know, do those things? And like, this is a guy that learned how to throw a two seam fastball, you know, middle of the year and saw Robbie Ray do it and say, Hey, let me try that. And picked it up. And within, within three weeks was throwing at 97 miles an hour at the front hit up of a left-handed hitter and having it dive back onto the plate and just leaving guys shaking their head like, well, what the hell is this all about? So, I mean, I think that's, you know, a guy that's like, where do you go? You just kind of refine it. You just get a little bit better. Avoid one of the, you know, you're always going to have bad outings, but find ways to maybe work your way out of trouble at times. Like say you don't have all your best stuff or whatever. Can you find your way to get out of it and give your, give the team a productive start? And they're going to still watch his innings and his workload. You know, if he goes out and throws – 100 pitches, one start, the 97, you know, the next one might only be 80 or 85 because they want to monitor that. But I think, yeah, for him, it's healthy. You know, having a way to combat lefties with that two-seamer, I don't know that he'll ever have a great changeup. But, I mean, like, then again, you never know. Maybe it was just like Robbie Ray and and Logan Gilbert each fooling around with split-finger fastballs. Maybe George Kirby picks up a baseball one day and says, well, I think I'll try a split finger and comes out and it's going to be a plus pitch. Cause uh, like Robbie Ray was saying today, that kid is that talented. He can manipulate a baseball so naturally compared to the other guys. Like they have to work at it. He just grips it, finds a way, says, what do I want this to do? And then throws it and it does it. I wanted to ask about Gilbert because he obviously had a, a great season last year, took a step forward from his rookie campaign. What is what is the next move for him? What can he do to improve on on a 3-2 ERA and a 3-4-6 FIP? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, like, you know, Logan does give up some hard contact. Yeah. You know, and he, he will give up the bomb. Uh, I think that's the big thing is maybe just kind of being able to reduce some of the hard contact numbers. His off-speed stuff is, is, is improving. You know, the extension he gets on his fastball, otherwise it's kind of straight at times. But, like, I think that's just the big thing is finding ways to limit hard contact. Is this new split finger that he's toying with? And I saw a video of it and it looked like a wiffle ball. Does that help do that? Especially against lefties, you know, lefties, lefties find ways. Like if they can find ways to stay off the slider or the breaking ball early in counts and just kind of load up on that fastball and cheat it a little bit, they hit him and they hit him hard. Does the split finger offset that? I mean, I think that's the biggest step for him is, is limiting the hard contact and, and being able to do that because like he's a really good pitcher in the moment you saw what he did late in the season you know the game where they clinched against the A's he was outstanding now that wasn't the toughest lineup in the world but I mean like he's really good and I think he's he's the type of person that will analyze data analyze results all this kind of stuff and and get better every time out now if you talk to his best friend Cal Raleigh who's his harshest critic Cal will be like, oh, he's never good ever, you know, but Cal, that's kind of the whole roommates thing as well. But I, I think, I mean, like 
we're sitting there talking about what Logan and George could be, and they're coming off years that are really good. I mean, yeah. for me, this group for success is just about being on the field. If they're on the field and they're on the mound pitching consistently and not you know battling any kind of lingering arm issues or anything like that, then they're a pretty good group uh, altogether. The weakest projected position for the Mariners is left field, and I guess also DH some of the same guys on the depth charts at, at each of those positions, but it comes back to the Jared Kelnick question, right? So <laughs> what is the outlook for Kelnick, as if that is ever an easy question to answer, and how do you expect the playing time to pan out with Kelnick and Pollock and other players in that mix? Yeah, I... I, I as far as I know, I mean, it's going to be as straight of a platoon as possible in left field, you know, with with Pollock starting the games in left when there's a lefty on the mound, you know, and Jared will be out there on the right-handed days. And, um, you know, I, I would think you'll see Jared as a defensive replacement late in games. And I think if you can do that, if you can just limit Jared to facing righties for right now, and I don't think he has a bad approach or a bad swing against lefties. It's just that like a lot of the lefties he was facing for a while are just really, really good. You know, what Framber Valdez did to him, you know, late in the season was kind of borderline cruelty. But yeah, I think we were talking about this today and we were having lunch and I, and I, I expect him to be a competent big league player. Now, is he going to match the hype? that he was before? No, I don't see that. You know, even as bad as he was and how often he swung and miss, if you look at the collected of, of two seasons, two abbreviated seasons, I think it's about 500 plate appearances. There's still 21 homers and I think 20 doubles. And think about that. I mean, like he was not put in a situation to succeed at times. He was really, you know, that he faced a lot of lefties early. They played him when he was struggling because they didn't have anybody else in, in 21. And so I think, you know, if the Mariners do a better job of controlling the scenarios where he's playing, I think he'll find some moderate to decent success and then can build on that. I think the talent is there. Uh, you look at everything that he does, he's got all the tools, but it's just the ability to kind of relax himself and and play and, you know, understanding the moment, not trying to hit a grand slam when there's nobody on base, you know, it's, it's, you know, how do you handle all that stuff? And then the failure that comes with it, it was like, uh, we joke, like he's kind of like, you know, Brett Favre or one of those quarterbacks who always tries to make the impossible happen every time. Whereas just, you know, take what's given. I think the, the lack of shifts will help him. I think some maturity will help him. You know, I didn't know if he'd be around, honestly. I thought if they tried to make a trade for Brian Reynolds or somebody else that maybe he would be packaged in it. I, it may speak to where his value is at. Yeah. But the Mariners believe he still can be something more than he's been. And I think if you look at kind of the talent and what you see from him, you definitely think that. So, yeah, I'm not expecting much more than – but if you, if you got two four, and it's so crazy we're saying this about him because it's like what we used to say about Zanino with like the swing and miss. But if you got <laughs> like if you got him to a 240, 250 batting average, you know the the power, this the the natural power will will produce extra base hits, you know, and he's a plus base runner when it comes to like aggressiveness and stuff like that. I, I think you know baby step spurs just 
don't strike out as much. Understand what you want to do with breaking pitches. Understand what guys are trying to do and don't don't try and sell out. You know, try and refine a little bit of the contact ability that he had when he was younger that seems to have been lost, you know, when in a push for power that wasn't necessarily what the Mariners asked, but what he thought was going to get him to the big league sooner. So one of the positions that Seattle definitely needed to shore up coming into this year was second base. They relied on Adam Frazier a lot there last year. I know Abraham Toro moonlighted there. He sort of offset a lot of Adam Frazier's war at the position, and their solution to that was to go out and acquire Colton Wong, who I think they had flirted with as a potential free agent addition at one point in the recent past. What should Mariners fans expect out of Wong? You know, I haven't seen a ton of him. I mean, you watch him a little bit on TV. Uh, he still looks really athletic. I think he's 31, maybe 32. I, I, the Mariners pursued him after going into the 21 season, after the 2020. They needed a filler at second base going into 21. The Brewer, They had offered Colton, I believe, two years. And the Brewers came back with another extra year, an extra option year or whatever. And uh, Jerry DePoto basically wasn't allowed to counter uh, by Kevin Mather at the time. And so, you know, they lost him and, you know, kind of tried to piece it together. I, I think, like, I, I, you know, I know he had like a ton of errors last year and Wong blamed it from playing in the shift that, you know, the Brewers shifted a lot more than he was used to and didn't really love that and kind of got into a funk, lost trust with his hands. I think he'll be fine. You know, now it's like you just kind of play. I mean, there is no shift. So, like, you're not – you're playing a more traditional second base. He'd probably, probably go up playing. He looks athletic still. From a, a hitting standpoint, you know, they just need better bat-to-ball guys in the bottom of the order. You know, Fraser was supposed to be that, but there just wasn't a lot of pop when he did. You know, it's like he was bat-to-ball, but it just didn't go anywhere. Wong has a little more pop. It might not be as much as he did when he's in Milwaukee or in the NL Central – but yeah, I I mean, just be a little bit better than what they've had. Because if you look at it, 2021, they won 90 games and they pieced it together with Toro and Dylan Moore. And I, I don't even know, Shed Long might have been out there, you know. And then last year they pieced together with Toro and, and Frazier. But they'd never really gotten exceptional production where they just, you know, since probably Robinson Cano. Yeah. And so... Just don't be kind of, you know, that that position just can't be a zero offensively and defensively. And I don't think it will be. I don't know that, like, Colton Wong is going to go back to his 20, 2018 form with the Cardinals, but I think he'll be a better player than he was last year for certain. One of the Mariners' intriguing rookies last year was Matt Brash, who is also one of the Mariners' many WBC players this spring. He was up and down last year. Great stuff. Shaky control is probably a generous way to put it. He was in the rotation. He was in the bullpen. Is he pretty much locked into relief now when he gets back from the WBC? This year, for certain. He didn't want to be locked. He didn't want to go to the bullpen last year, obviously, after he kind of pitched himself out of the rotation earlier in the year. Scouts have always kind of projected him as a reliever type because it's it's all hard, you know, it's the big slider and the, the knuckle curve and then the big fastball and not a lot of command. You know, like you said, it's not just command, it's control, like being able to throw a strike, let alone quality mm-hmm. strikes. But like the Mariners were going to let him this offseason stretch out to be a starter or at least come into camp as a starter and compete, you know, knowing like, hey, 
we just had a season before where nobody got hurt at all. So let's have some depth as a starter in case something happens early in the, in the spring. But with him going to the WBC and wanting to go to the WBC, the ramp up to being ready to pitch in games and such, the mayor said, okay, if you're going to do that, we'll let you do that. But we want you to just build up as a reliever because it's easier and it's quick. And we don't want to run any risk of you getting hurt uh, early because it's different than you've done before. Because like, you know, he, he's, he missed all of 2020 essentially. And, you know, just not a ton of volume in his past. So they just decided, look, if you want to pitch in the WBC, we'd rather than just have you come to camp only as a reliever. We're not going to bounce you back and forth this year. We're just going to have you only come as a reliever and they'll go from there. And he agreed to do that. And I think ultimately that may be his future, but it's, you know, it's costing him money. You know, if he's, if he were able to kind of refine some stuff and be a little more efficient in the strikes and become a better starter, well, you can make more money as a starter through arbitration and eventually free agency. But as of now, they've just told him, be a reliever. He seems fine with it. I haven't gotten a chance to talk to him. Saw a lot of video of, of him from like uh driveline and such. And it's pretty interesting. It's, you know, for a while there towards the end, he was one of their best relievers. You know, people talk about Munoz and Seawald and such, but Scott Service used him in some pretty difficult leverage situations, and yeah. he was really good because the stuff is just so explosive. Like when you see big league hitters look back at the catcher, look back at the umpire, or even look out at the mound like, what the hell was that? Then you know that it's it really plays. Yeah, watching Altuve respond to him in, in that playoff game in Seattle was pretty eye-opening for what Brash can do when it's all working for him. You mentioned how healthy Seattle's rotation was last year. I think that they were tied with San Diego and Colorado for using the the fewest number of pitchers with multiple starts last season. So they had the same group of guys going through there. Hopefully they're able to replicate that same degree of health and effectiveness this year, but it's pitchers, so they break. And if they do, who do you anticipate that they would look to for reinforcements on the farm? Are we getting close to Emerson Hancock time? You know, I I don't know if it'll be Hancock first. I think it'll be Bryce Miller would be the first. (laughs) Yeah, I think Bryce Miller will get the first shot. Um, I watched him throw today. You know, everybody believes he'll be a reliever because he's kind of slight of build. Fastball is real. The the breaking stuff was really impressive. Uh, Saw the changeup. You know, it's not. It's a get you by pitch, but they'll keep him stretched out for now until you know they need him but like if they get to a point where maybe they lose a reliever then he could be a guy they call up and you know similar to Edwin Diaz be an impact guy right away but they aren't going to do a full-time conversion they want him stretched out Hancock is I haven't seen him yet you know Scott Service said yesterday that he watched him pitch yesterday and he was really impressed it looked like a different guy Um, I think Emerson had been kind of tentative dealing with all the injury stuff in the past so he was really impressed by him I think, you know, he'll go to double A and he can move back up quickly because when it's right, I think with him, he can be really good. So it's not like he's stuck being behind Bryce Miller. He can move up. You know, there's a guy named Taylor Dollard, who's more of a command guy, 91, 92. He might be the more most mature and he has more pitches. He could fill in on a spot start maybe. And then their big guy that they really like, um, and I'm sure Meg's heard about him, is a guy named Brian Wu. He's a right-hander yep. who was coming off Tommy John when they drafted him, and he pitched in the Arizona Fall League. And DePoto said that they had probably more calls on Brian Wu in trade scenarios from teams 
than any other pitcher with exception of maybe Matt Brash. So, and I, I think honestly, if, if, if an injury came early enough and if he's still on the roster, which I'm stunned that he is, Chris Flexen would be the first guy to fill sure. a, a rotation spot. You know, we are all joking when he'll be traded to New York, you know, and I thought he'd be traded this off season in a package deal, but he, he would be the logical guy, but yeah, we'll see Bryce Miller. I think we'll probably see Bryce Miller in his debut in a, as a reliever. Um, and then, you know, Hancock and Brian will, will probably see later in the year as well. I mean, they kind of admitted like, we're going to probably have to use more pitchers this year. It might not be like 2017. I think it was May when they used like 45 pitchers that year and like yeah. 18 different starters, but like, they're not in a position, you know, in, in 21 and I think 21 might've been 21. Yeah. When they were trying to do the goofy six man rotation, and guy to protect Kikuchi and guys were getting hurt. Marco got hurt. So guys like Robert Duggar were getting called up and Darren McCacken and all these guys, they're in a little bit better spot. Like the guys that they would turn to now to make starts are more have legitimate big league stuff to get out. It's not just to fill in, you know, and be a just a spot placeholder that you hope can just nurse you through five innings. Yeah, and I guess the Mariners are sort of in a similar position to the White Sox, the other team we're talking about today in terms of their current farm system rankings. And obviously, both of these teams had celebrated farm systems in the not-too-distant past, and they've graduated guys, and that's what you want a farm system to do. And you promote those prospects, and then hopefully you're in the period when you're winning. So it's sort of understandable if there's not a, a rich crop of prospects coming up behind the crop that you already graduated. But are they sort of seeing it as the core basically is there, is in place? It's it's Julio, it's Kirby, it's Gilbert, it's these guys, it's Brash, it's these guys we've been talking about already. Or do they see anyone who's coming up behind them as sort of, you know, of that kind of caliber when it comes to this uh, Mariners window, however long that lasts? I don't know. Maybe on the pitching side, I don't think there's really a position player that has that sort of pedigree. Or the readiness, you know, their their top position playing prospect, Harry Ford, is was drafted a couple of years ago. I think he's twenty. He's a catcher. Those guys take a little longer to progress. He's a really great athlete, but you know, he's not ready to go anytime soon. And and they don't. I mean, I I was looking around like when they if they were to have a position player injury, they just don't have prospect guys like that where you mm-hmm. can say, Oh yeah, I know this guy's ready. Or, you know, there was no Adam Jones from back in the day waiting or even a Brian Lahare, like a guy that you felt like could play at the, they don't have those guys. They have a bunch of quad a guys that are older in triple a, I guess maybe Zach Deloach, but I mean, like they're just not there. They graduated guys. They traded away two really talented shortstops. So yeah, they're a little, the most of their prospect talent is either pitching or it's in the very low, low, you know, minor league system. So if they were to sustain, like if a player were to get a season long injury, you know, then they're going to have to go out and get a guy or, you know, like if it happened in spring, do they go out and have to roll the dice with jerks and profile or something like that? You know, cause they're not, there isn't a, their triple a group really isn't prepared to go in. I mean, like we were kind of joking, but with Tramel being injured and it's only yeah. seven or eight weeks, all of a sudden does, Leonis Martin being here means something more than it did when they just kind of helped him out by giving him a minor league sign. I don't know, but it's, it's kind of crazy that they don't have any help right there. And I, and I still feel like I look at the roster and they're about short anyways, even at their full complement. but this is what they're going to go with right now. 
Yeah, and, and that's even with them having traded for Teoscar Hernandez, who, you know, I think at least in terms of his offensive potential is a worthy uh, successor to Hanager. I, you know, I know that the opinions on his defense are a little less sterling, but what are they hoping for out of him? Yeah, it's, it's you know, and, and a lot of people didn't have great opinions on Mitch's defense, though I thought it was better than some people thought. You know, they, they need him. To be good, you know, they need him to be. They'll take what he did last year. Sure, you know, don't know that we'll see what you know the was the All Star year was twenty one. I don't know that we'll see that sort of production, particularly given that you're playing eighty one games at T Mobile Park. But they they just need him to be a presence in the middle of the order. You know, they they don't have they needed that guy. I mean, they Hanniger wasn't there last year a lot, and they managed to kind of overcome it. But, you know, they did it with exceptional pitching and exceptional bullpen. And, you know, as much as they like to believe that they're good, like good in those regards, you know, like we've talked about pitchers break. And so they know they needed to get better offensively. They know they need to get better offensively because if they want to move past the idea of just only being a wild card team and maybe, com- you know, compete for a division title, you can't win every game three to one or two to one. And so, you know, he's got some talent and, he can hit guys that, you know, they talk about he hits good pitching. I just wonder what it'll be like when you're not playing in Toronto 81 times and you toss in nine games at Fenway and nine games at Yankee Stadium and, and nine games in even Tampa and ball, you know, Baltimore, not so much anymore, but like it's not as great of a hitting in the division. And yeah, granted, you have less division games, but I just wonder what he'll be in the American League West compared to what he was in the East. Guess I should note that the Mariners will have the 22nd, 29th, and 30th draft picks in the coming amateur draft. The number 29 coming from Julio being on the opening day roster and winning the Rookie of the Year award. So that decision paid off in multiple ways. So maybe that'll help replenish the farm system a little bit. I did want to ask about just the enthusiasm from the fan base surrounding this team now. As we noted, it was maybe not the most scintillating offseason, but the Mariners, they gained in attendance last year. I mean, almost every team was up from 2021, just getting a little bit further away from peak COVID. But in a relative sense, I think they moved up from 20th in per game attendance in 2021 to 15th in 2022. So it seems like there would still be room to improve there. So coming off of Julio's great season and making it back to the playoffs, is there an expectation that attendance will get a big boost this year? Yeah. I mean, they also have the all-star game. So right, yeah, season ticket holders have uh, priority in getting those tickets. So there's, I've been told there's a bump in season ticket commitments, you know, not even just the full season, but in the packages. There, There is a huge excitement around the Mariners. Meg knows this and what that city can be like when things are right. She probably didn't get to see a lot of it, but <laughs> like the Mariners, the Mariners could draw fans when they were bad yeah, or uninteresting. They're, the Mariners know how to, to get people to come to that ballpark and it's a great place to go during the summertime. But when they're, when they're good, it's it's really special. When I was an intern in 2000 uh, at the News Tribune, and then later came out in 2001 that season and going to games, you know, it's it's 30,000 people every night, and that's the only place you want to be in Seattle, and and it's starting to get back to that, and you know, the excitement, the fans that were upset about the off season, yeah, what I've noticed is, is because they've gotten good, and I'm getting more and more fans that hadn't been around for a while you know, interacting with you, but it is, it's true. It's like, it's, it's a big deal for 
that city and people always associated with the Seahawks. But before the Seahawks ever became good, it was a baseball town and it really has kind of gone back to that. And, you know, the Mariners are smart at, at capitalizing on making money. They're going to do that and they're going to try and find ways to get people there. And I expect, you know, another, a big jump this year in, in ticket sales, as long as they continue to be good throughout the season, because it's a pretty good group in terms of like people have identified with them. They like them. A lot of the personalities, and I mean, like Julio just is a draw. People just, like I haven't, when I was a kid in 94, you know, I think I was in eighth grade, or as in high school, 94, 95. But even when I was a kid in eighth grade, I remember going to see Griffey as a rookie and just what the number of little kids that were there. And like this year, this past year, like you just can't. I couldn't believe the amount of young kids I saw back at the park all wearing Julio jerseys or following Julio, everything about Julio. Like that guy and that kid has captured that whole area, like the way he's gone about everything. And so it's just, there's kind of been this renaissance of baseball excitement, but it's an excitement around having that superstar. He's locked in and he, unlike Griffey, I think he's a lot more comfortable with it but that charisma and everything, like you just can't help but be drawn into him. And you're just seeing it all over, like kids all over wearing Julio gear. You just see it. Like when I was at the airport a few weeks ago, uh, going to Mexico, I just noticed there were kids all over and they're all wearing Julio stuff, you know, Mariners hats and stuff. And you had, you didn't see that for a while. I mean, I've been out in the, in Tacoma area since 2006 and that hadn't always been readily available. And to to see kind of the boom now, I, I really think, you know, the, the Mariners could be in a prime window for success, not just on the field, but kind of in, you know, growing their brand across that area and, and drawing fans. So we at Fangraphs have the Mariners projected for 83 and a half wins. So that's second in the West behind the Astros. I know Baseball Prospectus and Pocota have them third behind the Angels and then Houston on top. And I'm curious what your sense is of where they see themselves in relation to a division that is getting stronger. You know, you have the Angels trying to actually supplement Trout and Otani with a bunch of guys who are competent big leaguers. The Rangers are making these big pushes with their free agent signings. So where do they understand themselves to be? Well, the Angels didn't really get a competent big league manager to supplement the situation, (laughs) but um, we'll hear about Pakoda and the fan graphs projections and everything else. Um, they tend to mention it every once in a while. They'll notice, you know, oh, we were picked to win this, this, and this last year, and look what we did, you know, in the year before. So they know. You know, I don't think they're a division winner by any means. I just – I really like the Astros' moves this offseason. I thought they were pretty smart. And until you even – like, everybody says, oh, yeah, we played right with them. But you didn't beat them. You know, right. played right with them in the postseason – you know, and you didn't beat them. Now the Mariners are missing, you know, some guys. And, and the Mariners played them more competitively than they have in a long time. But, you know, that's get you a division. Being competitive against a team, unless you can find ways to beat them, doesn't really matter. So I still think that the Astros are heads and tails above everybody else. Seattle, I would pick second. I, I don't – I guess maybe I, I've been burned too many times thinking the Angels are going to be good. <laughs> and then they're not. I like what Texas did. I thought Texas played yeah. really well towards the end of last season as well. They're not good defensively, though. But they, they gave the Mariners troubles. And if I guess if like all these pitching guys, and we've already seen some stuff with DeGrom, but that was the biggest thing with 
the Rangers last year is the Mariners knew they could score runs against them. You know, when they when they couldn't score runs against anybody, they knew they could score runs against the Rangers. And I think, you know, either the bullpen or the starters. So this year, like, if those improvements are there, I think it'll be better. You know, I still think the Mariners are the second best team. And I think they're probably about an 87 win team. But we'll see. You know, that's as they're currently constructed. I I wouldn't be surprised if they try and make a move again at, at midseason. You know, their, their never-ending pursuit of Brian Reynolds will continue <laughs> forever, and, you know, until – you know, unless Jared really turns into something that will continue to, to try and get him. But, you know, you can see spots where maybe they can supplement, you know, like get more of a full-time DH that can bang it a little bit more than trying to piece it together all the time. Yeah, we've been ending these segments by asking our guests to say what would be a successful season for the team that they're previewing. And prior to this year, I guess the answer for the Mariners would have been easy. You've got to make the playoffs, right? So now that they check that box, what becomes the goal or how you gauge whether they had a successful season? Is it just you know winning a playoff series or is it something more than that? No, I think getting back to the playoffs is mm-hmm. is a successful season because I, I you know it's not easy I mean if it was easy they would have done it once in the last couple of decades <laughs> you know I mean and and th- think about this they were 10 games below 500 on June 19th you know 10 games yeah and they ripped off a stretch where they went like 28 and three including a 14 game winning streak where JP Crawford sat out five games to suspension Julio missed a game they had to monitor George Kirby's innings. I mean, they didn't really miss Winker for the six games he was out, but like they, they had guys out and they ended up stretch. They beat teams like the Padres too and some good teams. And it's like, that just doesn't happen. You can't sit there and say, okay, well, they're no more of that team than they were maybe the crappy team that was, you know, 28 and 38 or whatever it was. But to do what they did to get back in position and bank those wins and then kind of withstand that lull they had at the very end of the season. I mean, that was, it was a full like roller coaster. I don't know that they'll be as extreme this year, but it's still going to be hard. Like you said, the games against the Angels and the Rangers should be better. They should be improved. And, and the schedule is different. You don't get the A's as much, although they didn't play well against them towards the end. But I, I just think you can't take getting to the playoffs for granted unless maybe you're the Dodgers. And so, you know, if, you, if you've been there once in the last 22 years to sit there and say, oh, yeah, we're back again just because we have a lot of the same guys kind of misreads the fact that it was difficult for you to get there last year, even with a team that won 90 games and it wasn't simple by any means. And it came down to the last week of the season to do it. So I think getting back would be a success. And then if, you know, they won the wild card series, if they can find a way to win a division series, that would be a major success. And this year, you've got Stephen Vote on the coaching staff, so that should be fun for everyone. <laughs> that, yeah, nicest guy ever. <laughs> yeah, he's. Uh, I was quite happy when I saw that. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine his services were probably in demand. So the Mariners won the the Stephen Vote coaching sweepstakes bullpen and quality control coach. Nice addition. All right. Well, you can read about the Mariners and their bid to make it back to the playoffs at the Seattle Times all season long. You can also find Ryan on Twitter at his name, Ryan Divish. Thank you, as always, Ryan. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And with that, we will take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment with James Fegan of The Athletic to discuss the Chicago White Sox.
All right, we are back, and we are joined now by a senior writer for The Athletic covering the White Sox, James Vegan, fresh off the action at White Sox camp a couple hours ago. He was tweeting out slow-motion footage of Lucas Giolito throwing pitches in the bullpen. Now he's talking to us. Hello, James. Hi, how's it going? All right. We talked a couple of weeks ago when the Athletics MLB writers released their off-season grades for all 30 teams about the fact that collectively, I thought you had all been kind of tough graders. No one gave any team an A. However, every team except one got at least a, a gentleman's D. <laughs> I guess Nick Groke gave the Rockies a D. But then at the bottom of the list, there was the Chicago White Sox and James Vegan with a big ol' F. So explain the failing grade for the White Sox offseason. <sighs> <laughs> they had three major needs. Second base, left field, and a starting pitcher. Also, I got asked to like submit my entry like maybe the day after like the Clevenger news had broken. I was uh-huh. maybe in a... <laughs> Not that like today is a wildly different mental place since um, <laughs> he spoke to the media for the first time yesterday uh, right. from when this is being recorded. But maybe as in a more pitched moment than uh, you know others were <laughs> at the time. I thought everyone else graded kind of soft and mostly based on the idea that I was the only F. And <laughs> yeah, you're expecting some, some company, some other failing grades out there and then they left you <laughs> hanging out to dry. <laughs> well, prior to the news, I was uh, prepared to like tell a really long anecdote about how my AP US history teacher tried to explain to the class that a C was a reasonable grade since we were all sophomores. <laughs> <laughs> and we're taking, he's explaining like, you know, this is a college level class by definition. And, you know, a C1 is just a statement saying you did what you're required to do. No more, mm-hmm. no less. It should yeah. be viewed as like some deficiency. And the fact that you all are, you know, 15 and you're getting that in a, you know, college level class, you know, it's commendable on its own. And that's why it's weighted uh, to where you get a 6, you know, 0.0 for an A or a 5 for your GPA. You, right. You'd maintain a 4.0 if you got, you know, nothing but C's and AP classes. And, <laughs> and I would say that, like, the you know, White Sox did what they needed to do. They added a starter. They added a left fielder. And, you know, they deployed the strategy of, well, we'll, we'll spend a bit more on our left fielder than maybe it was expected before the offseason. And because we feel like we have a little bit of internal depth in second base, we'll roll the dice on that as opposed to maybe splitting up and getting – you know, one seven point five AAV level left fielder and a similar kind of mid tier second baseman, and I could get down with that strategy, and I could say that they did what they needed to do, but that you know the World Series is an AP level course. You know, you, <laughs> you have to go above and beyond to really get an A for that. Uh, given yeah. that that's what their ambitions are. Yeah, yeah. I'm giving them a C. It's a respectable <laughs> grade. They conduct themselves like a major league organization, but they did not just they did not raise the bar to the where they're going to be better than the other 29 teams in baseball right. that was what i was prepared to do but then the clever news broke and beyond the fact of you know he could get suspended and thus you did not fill your need because you are now having depth options pitch uh i was mostly just you know disgusted by the whole affair uh mm-hmm. and, and you know gave them an f and yep. i think you know they probably given that they just went through this whole experience of dealing with their first day of spring camp of, of talking about you know, very um, troubling allegations and, you know, whether they should have known about it and, and their actions leading up to it. I thought they'd be understanding the fact that they have wrought a unpleasant spring training upon themselves. Mm-hmm. 
no great inflation here. You are holding the line. But <laughs> maybe we can talk about Clevenger then since that's been the news this week and since he is in camp. So you and other reporters uh, got quotes from him and from Rick Hahn on Wednesday. So give us some sense of uh, what was said and how this signing is being perceived now that this has come to light. I don't want to deeply and unhappily sigh after every question you ask uh, <laughs> for the podcast, but you know we are two for two at this point. It's yeah. kind of like a three worlds. Like uh, you know, Clevenger is asking everyone to be patient and saying that he did nothing wrong and he'll be exonerated, and pleading people to not rush the judgment for him. While you know, meanwhile, his accuser is doing live hits on sports radio, saying that everything he said was a you know, dishonest at the same time. So you have that you have that reality where he's, you know, expecting to be everyone's reaction to this to be essentially rebuked by uh, you know, complete exoneration from an MLB investigation, which I don't know if that's even, you know, something that the MLB would ever say that they, you know, he's he, I don't think they would declare him innocent. They would just, you know, say that mm-hmm. they couldn't reach a, enough in, evidence to justify a suspension. And then you have the manager saying, Well, I've got what I got. He was signed to be a pitcher, he's in camp. You know, he, he's going to be one of our starting rotation. You know, that's that was mainly what that's all Pedro Gafol is really situated to say or do until, you know, the team makes some other decision or the league makes some other decision. And then you have the GM, Rakan, who's more of the line to talk about this, like the mistake that it seems that this signing was, where he's trying to explain why why it is that this wouldn't have showed up in their background check or their due diligence of him, what they viewed the calculated risk they already felt their words they were making on his character, given, you know, other instances he's been involved with, the one that, you know, Han identified pretty readily of the fairly embarrassing, I would say, uh, break of COVID protocol that he was involved in that did not speak well to him in the first place, on top of other stuff that they, you know, heard offhand or without, you know, they maybe a more on the record, you know, documentation of the instance uh taking part of it and discussing that this was uh you know unfortunate situation and you know has cast a pall on the camp and you know has probably furthered uh the distrust that the fans have for a team that they ended last season deeply unhappy with. And so we're continuing forward. I watched them throw a bullpen today. Uh, it was not something I tweeted out video of. I did not think there was a you know a big enthusiastic audience for that. Um, as often yeah. as as much as Mike Clevenger did, you know, ask us to ask him about his mechanical changes yesterday during his session, that was that was not something we really dove in deeply to. But you know, it, it's a bizarre world where he's continued to prepare for the season as if you know he's still this kind of buy low signing that everyone's optimistic of changes for, while you know the front office is acknowledging the situation more as it is, and I think the fans are even of even higher level of uh, dismayed and flat out enraged uh, most of the time uh, about the entire state of the team, about the offseason, and definitely about this particular one side. So if Clevenger does become unavailable, either because he ends up being placed on administrative leave or is suspended under the league's policy, what are their options beyond him to try to reinforce that rotation? Because I know that they talked about him being a calculated risk in a couple of ways yesterday. When this signing happened, I was like, well, that that doesn't seem like it's going to solve your problems because he might just be bad. So they were probably going to need depth beyond the five that they have slated to start in the rotation on opening day as it is. Who are their options there? Something I heard from White Sox people like in the wake of 
you know, the news is like, well, we were really more worried about Clevenger's knee than having an eye out for something like this, you know, coming around. So that, that kind of was the question at signing was that, you know, a lot of people thought that his struggles in the second half last year were kind of wearing down because of, you know, the first year after Tommy John surgery, but he really felt it was something, his issue with his knee and he got a PRP injection in the offseason. So yeah, we were already kind of wondering what kind of, how much the depth would be involved. And Obviously, last season, their kind of breaking case of emergency pitcher that they, you know, broke the case of uh, multiple times was Davis Martin, who kind of really came from nowhere. He wasn't even really a major league invite to spring camp last year and, and was a pretty effective spot starter. They used an opener with him a few times uh, that seemed to help. Facing the Royals multiple times definitely also helped. What definitely did not help his final season line was that he uh, gave up nine runs and got five outs in the last game of the season. And afterwards kind of left that start with a little bit of a bicep tightness, which he attributed to, you know, basically he got worked as big of an inning load as he had at any point until 2019. And it was pretty young into his, his pro career. He didn't really have that type of workload of that intensity uh, in his history. But I would say for the most part, looked like, you know, a decent, solid, you know, number six starter. Uh, I have more trepidation about him entering as number five or having someone that you're going to ask 30 starts from. But you know, he, he had seen this velocity jump from his mechanical adjustments and doing this weird little hinge thing where he sticks his butt out uh, before every pitch, which I think is um, really adorable to watch. But he, he seemed like an effective, you know, swingman type of guy. Behind him is where you're really seeing the the White Sox have not had a significant kind of prospect pitching growth behind the, all the guys that kind of acquired in the rebuild, you know, Dylan Cease, Michael Kopech, Lucas Giolito. They haven't really had that next wave come to pass. Uh, they spend a lot of uh, picks on, on prep pitchers, Matthew Thompson, Jared Kelly, Andrew Dahlquist. Matthew Thompson's in big league camp, but otherwise they haven't got a ton of returns or at least not quick upper minors production from, from that group just yet. And Garrett Crochet undergoing Tommy John surgery has kind of prevented him from becoming this, you know, new entry into rotation. He's expected back in mid-May, but it would be a bullpen only. So the guy they're touting is maybe depth behind that is Sean Burke, who was their third round pick in 2021. But even he is a guy who made like two starts in AAA at the end of last season after getting, you know, a little bit on track in AA in the second half after going through some struggles in, you know, kind of the mid-level of the minors his own so there's not a ton of depth there that's really proven or like a top prospect who's like knocking at the door who's going to enter the rotation a little bit it's somebody it's a lot of guys you'd expect to maybe need a half season before you of development before you really like all right let's give him a shot in the rotation and there's still not a, necessarily a ton behind burke they cited claiming aj alexi off waivers so i think was you know placed on waivers a couple times this offseason is also part of their starting depth but yeah, it's not going to be a lot of names that are, are well known to, I don't know, many people behind, behind Eric Long and Hagen himself uh, that are that are starting <laughs> depth. Uh, if something happens with Clevenger, which is, you know, obviously extremely possible. At the top of the rotation, you have Cease, who's the Cy Young runner-up reigning, and then you have some more uncertainty, I suppose, in that Giolito is coming off a down year. One of your questions heading into spring training in a column earlier this week was, is Michael Kopech ready to take the leap? So it would help with the depth issue if the top of the rotation was really strong behind Cease. So what are the expectations for a Giolito bounce back and a more durable and, and effective Kopech season? Well, Kopech, the big thing was that he basically pitched possibly half, possibly more of uh, his first season 
on a meniscus that was either torn or in the process of getting torn, you know, throughout the second half as it, as it kind of continued to try to work on it, which is not great. And I think you saw, you know, maybe some of his best starts of the year at Yankee Stadium uh, out in late May. You probably saw the fastball getting the swing and misses uh, that you would associate with Michael Kovac, given his you know prospect history and pedigree. But that wasn't really something he had on a consistent basis. I, I think the rosy view is certainly from watching up close. You kind of thought like this guy showed a lot of metal to kind of post a decent ERA to log the innings that he was able to log, given the fact that he was pitching compromised much of the year and, and not really able to you know overpower people or get the kind of whiffs on his fastball that you would associate with someone with his you know his underlying fastball metrics when he's at, at the top of his game. The less charitable view is that you know he got hurt and that's never good and that's you know something that's you know. It's something he had to rehab all offseason with. Maybe he wasn't able to have the offseason he would want. And, you know, you look at a strikeout to walk ratio, it doesn't really look very good. It doesn't really project very well. And, you know, it's probably why there's not a lot of, you know, Pakoda or, you know, Zips is, is not particularly kind to him and not really seeing this as a top rotation starter going forward. Uh, there's probably some development with his breaking balls and his command that really needs to happen before you really start pegging him to, to be making that leap as well. And, it's also a little bit of open question of how ready he'll be uh, and how he'll look uh, in spring. I asked Pedro Gafol about it like literally a half hour ago, and you know they they maintained like the line that he's looks he's on track for the season. He's not going to have any issues. Um, he did report to camp early for it, but it's a bit of a question. Lucas Giolito, he kind of uh, had this idea of gaining like thirty pounds of muscle last season, and I, I think we all get overly excited about pounds of muscle stories but you know now this season he is a wow the pounds of muscle thing really didn't work out and now i'm back to normal is kind of the thread for optimism uh for him <laughs> he, he he definitely has has lost all the weight and looks back to normal and you know did a couple things to loosen up his arm action which he felt like was maybe a little bit of a byproduct of how bulked up he did get but mostly i would say for him is that you know this was a very pretty solid consistent pitcher for a three-year time span which in modern baseball is a relative eternity of track record and consistency. If he's saying things are physically back to normal, he's at least got the record of, you know, missing bats with his, his changeup and his four seamer that would give you confidence for regression back to normal more so than you're asking for a kind of a leap in performance that never has really been seen consistently, which is more what you're dealing with, uh, with Kopech. I, I would also throw in Lance Lynn. He had knee surgery really early last season. The overall season kind of looks choppy, and obviously the inning loads is not what you're consistent with him. And obviously at his age, you're kind of waiting for things to break down at any point in time. But he was pretty much Lance Lynn for all the second half to, to a degree that gives you a little bit of confidence that he should be back to normal because you did see it for about a two to three month span. We might have a couple more questions in the rotation there, but since you've gone through a list of guys who have dealt with injury, why don't we go through a couple more? Because it seems like everyone who played for the White Sox in That's 2022 <laughs> yeah, spent at least some amount of time on the injured list and some pretty long stretches. So I want to go through a trio of position players. This is not the totality of, of their injuries by any means, but the ones that I, I kind of want to get a sense of. So you know, I know that Moncada lost time to, I think, both his right and left hamstring being strained. Luis Robert had blurred vision, and then he had the wrist injury, and Aloy Jimenez had a hamstring strain of his own. So where are all of those guys in camp, and what might we expect from them this year? <laughs> I mean, lost in the fact that, uh, you know, every every uh, first day of camp usually has the GM 
basically rattle off everyone who hurt themselves in the offseason. And it's funny because the fan reaction to it is always literally like, it's almost like they respond to it like uh, all these guys just like fell down the stairs walking into the facility the first day. And that's what happened. Despite this otherwise being like the worst, most dour first day of camp I've ever experienced in seven years on the beat. No one's hurt. Like everyone's healthy except for Crochet, who's, who's coming off of Tommy John. Like they have all these guys are theoretically 100% and full go. You know, Luis Robert and Johan Mankata are both playing in WPC for Cuba. They're both really excited and they're like in great shape and motivated to really be locked in before they usually are. Eloy Menez is, uh, you know, insisting upon his ability to play the outfield, mm. which is allowed to exist because, you know, Griffol kind of explained as like, well, logistically, like we're matching up against lefties or who's available that day. He, right. still, de- he still needs to like play it maybe twice a week. So, yeah, we're telling him to still be an outfielder because you know, <laughs> it's not like he'll never play outfield again. But, yeah, we're, we're definitely going to be DH him a lot more this season. And, and that's probably a big reason to be optimistic about Jimenez in general. It's just he hit really well in the second half last year. I would say everyone's in that entire offense's numbers look really weird because they had just a team-wide inability to hit for power or execute any kind of approach that seemed geared for hit for power. They had, I think if they didn't lead all of baseball in O-swing, they were either second behind like the Tigers. If they didn't have one of the lowest ISOs, they were bottom five. They, It's a just an entire team clearly built with power hitters to, to the detriment of their defense at times that just did not hit for power and did not have the approach for it in any way. And so it's this team that doesn't look that good or doesn't look like it has that much offensive might in projections that everyone is like, well, you know, I'm Mankata. He could hit 20 to 30 bombs and get on base a ton, even though he was, you know, outright terrible last year. Or, you know, Luis Robert, they have the same expectation for him. Or even having, you know, 30 home run projections for him, even though you've never really seen that consistently from him at any point. And I don't think there's any kind of projection system that would, you know, imagine Eloy Menes playing more than 110 games in a season. And they think that if they have him healthy for a full year, that it's like, there's no defensive value, but you know if if this was 1990s type of uh, award voting, it's an MVP level bet, uh, so to speak. You know, back in the days where we just counted RBIs and declared the best player in baseball that way. Well, and I guess here that we should also check in on Tim Anderson, who had the hand injury and missed a bunch of time last year, and has still managed to just hit 300 and run a high BABIP and be a productive hitter despite not really hitting for much power. So is he also in the list of at the moment healthy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Tim's also playing the WBC. Right. He probably, the subtext at least of the, of the comments at the end of last year was he would have been back by the end of last season and probably played through maybe a little bit of discomfort in the final two weeks if there was something to play for, which there wasn't. And instead right. they kind of just bagged it. And, you know, he's been pretty much full go of the entire off season. I think, you know, he really saw a lot of power diminish last year. And, you know, part of that is the fact that he's become just someone who really just tries to hit for average and hits opposite field all the time. But also members of the coaches have indicated that when he came back from that groin uh, injury mid season, that, you know, his legs and his ability to drive the ball didn't really come with him. So, there's obviously an expectation of you know him being able to th- at least threaten to be a 2020 guy if he's fully healthy, even though that's like with a lot of other people on the team is not something we've seen on some consistent basis. I mean, I think Tim Anderson's had an IL stint every season for around four years in a row now. You can even throw Andrew Vaughn in there, even though he's mostly healthy last year, because they believe that running him around the outfield out of position, something that yeah. was never a vision for him in the draft, 
is why he kind of didn't have the, uh, the the pop or the the offensive second half that mirrored what he was able to do in the first half when it looked like he was kind of coming into what everyone thought he was going to be coming out of the draft. Yeah, and you would think that not having him run around out there might also lead to some defensive benefits too, which you know might help uh, with the run prevention, at least if there are pitching questions, perhaps a defensive improvement will make up for some of that. But we've probably buried the lead a little bit here. This team has a new manager. Tony Russa is not the manager of the Chicago White Sox. You've mentioned Pedro Grifol a couple times already. So tell us what led to Grifol's hiring, why he was the choice. And how the process differed from the process that led to Tony La Russa getting hired. And I guess, what, if anything, you expect to be different about the way the team is run, aside from maybe fewer intentional walks on one-two counts? I don't know if it's like a level of uh, ambiance that listeners would appreciate that I've like tried to do this podcast in the living room while like Levi Weaver and Trent Rosecrans both like are going to walk in the door. But uh, I hope everyone appreciates it. Um <laughs> <laughs> Levi was just on the show this week. Yeah. So. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if I'm ready to like put, like, I don't think a manager can, I don't know, add 30 wins to a team or something like that. But like, I just, I don't think the team did anything well that you would attribute to this is a well-managed team last season. Like their defensive, you know, their infield, everything rotation-wise uh, in terms of like, just manning their assignments correctly didn't look good. And it really didn't look that good in 2021 either. Their offensive approach, their ability to, I think they were just very awful all year. Just weird execution things like getting runners in with from third base with less than two outs. Like they both hit a ton of singles, but also didn't situationally hit well. They didn't hit for power. They didn't take any walks. Like, like everything just was bad and poorly ordered and... You know, Pedro Gofol obviously talks a lot about the necessity of having a sound offensive approach and them hitting for power. He's, you know, very adamant about them doing full speed defensive drills and, and not just kind of casually hitting ground balls, which is probably something more common to what you saw uh, watching his team practice last year. He, you know, he's, he's spent the last two days just being really excited about high speed PFPs. Um, if, if that's your where your baseball nerdum lies, you can probably talk to Grafol about it for, for two hours. I, I think he's really passionate about these wiffle ball PFPs that he's making uh, people do. I can't necessarily tell you that I've studied the Royals bench coach of the last few years so intensely that I can guarantee you what he's offered, but what everything he's saying um, speaks of like the more general what you hear around baseball of what the new way of coaching is, which I think should be a significant up- upgrade from last year where just everything just seemed strangely antiquated and out of place and not functioning the way it should be. I I think a, a replacement level manager, and you know, from our, I don't think Rick Vole is that. He, he sounds like a very sharp guy. He seems like he's been playing this for a long time and has a lot of good ideas and you know, uh, you know has a, a very interesting staff that's been pieced together. But I would think a replacement manager level manager could do a lot to improve what this team was last year. So <laughs> I certainly have confidence in what Rick Vole could do because you've not had maybe the discussions not had the sort of um, conflicts in, in uh, interviews that I had with Tony Russo over the last couple of years that raised a lot of questions from people. Well, one of the things that will fall to him to manage is the bullpen, which was sometimes also a bit of a head scratcher when it when it came to Tony. And, you know, I don't want to make a joke leading into this. It'll be down a man, at least in the beginning. Do we have any update on Liam Hendricks and how he's doing? Like he comes to the complex all the time and plays catch. 
he doesn't usually do it with a team. It's a lot more he's staying active. It's it's he's not part of like a team workouts or anything like that. But he is an he already lived out here, so he's you know comes out here. He tries to stay as active as he can, but he's you know we, we were talking to Joe Kelly about it uh, just today. He, he plays catch with Liam pretty often. Uh, he says like obviously he has days where he's fatigued, where he's tired, where he's not you know capable of doing stuff with the energy he'd like. I think he's purely in the more in the prism of really impressive level of uh, performance and athleticism and work uh, for someone who has uh, lymphoma rather than, yeah. you know, this is someone we're measuring towards how ramped up is he? Could he call pitch? Sure. They're not expected to really give any update on his status before opening day. So I, they're definitely prepared to be without him for, for I would say, months, uh, even if they're not giving a specific timeline, uh, just knowing what it would take to ramp somebody up. Even if he was fully go on opening day would be something. But I've always thought the proper way to approach it was Let's assume he's out for the year because if he came back during the season, that would give everyone the proper level of appreciation for him pulling it off because it would be astounding. It would be yeah. you know, something that should be very celebrated and, and be dealt with it with awe because what he's facing is very physically draining on top of the fact that it, it requires a lot of just being out of your routine and uh, not having the activity that you know these professional athletes usually have to keep themselves ready to perform at such a high level. So. I think they have to assume that you're without him uh, until they hear otherwise. And Pedro would not tell me who his closer would be uh, the last two days, despite working on it. He said, uh, he used the phrase, I'm a big leverage guy today, which I thought was fun. But <laughs> he, he didn't quite say, like, I'm, I revoke closer roles entirely. But he did kind of say, like, well, if somebody is this emerges as this like lights out reliever that you know we want in the ninth inning every single time and that's how we'll operate but maybe we won't and maybe that's not what we'll have maybe we'll just respond to matchups and leverage and, and do that he, he's leaving it kind of more open-ended i think if there was a traditional i think if tony Russo is managing he would just have named kendall graveman the closer already right whereas if you have a more progressive role about it you might leave it open that ronaldo lopez becomes the best reliever on this team and if you want to like go down a rabbit hole of me and have this wild theory about how Garrett Crochet will one day be the closer. And maybe that will be the way you kind of max out the value of this talented guy who really hasn't had the opportunity to develop as a starter in any way since being drafted. You know, that's, that's something you can waste a half hour talking to me about, but I don't know if it, since he's out until mid-May, I don't know if that's something that will take hold this season. Well, I don't know that we need to spend a half hour on it, but I was going to ask, you know, there are names in this bullpen that are going to be familiar to people. You know, we've mentioned Joe Kelly, you brought up Graveman, Lopez is there, they have Jake Diekman, they have Aaron Bummer. Among the guys who were sort of slated to play a role in that pen in the early going, is there anyone who you're particularly intrigued by or think might surprise fans in a good way? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think Aaron Bummer is really good, but he hasn't been healthy. And then when he's not healthy, he tends to have like these week or two where, you know, it's a very... Aaron Bummer's like basic instruction as a reliever has often been like throw your crazy moving slinker sinker towards the middle of the zone because that way it might be a strike. Like it, it, it's a very you know the the metrics on the pitch, the level of ground balls he gets on it are very you know good and very uh, you know extreme, but the you know command profile for it is, is is always operating on the fringes. So when he has a hamstring setback, there he misses a couple of weeks and then has two weeks where he's basically trying to find the strike zone and then finally kind of gets into a groove for a month and then another hamstring setback happens that winds up 
giving you a very funky looking season from him. But I, I think if he was very frustrated at the end of last season about the number of injuries he's dealt with over the last couple of years and, and kind of motivated to make some changes about it. So if you have a healthy season for him where he is able to be, you know, active for three, four months at a time, I, I think he emerges as kind of an, you know, a very viable eighth inning guy that makes you think about putting one of those uh, other right-handed relievers in the closer role and, and being pretty squared away. But so yeah, high on him. I would say I've been uh, unreasonably high on Jimmy Lambert his entire career. Uh, <laughs> But he's someone that they basically finally gave up the ghost on kind of starting him last season because of the bullpen need they uh, had. And his, his metrics weren't the greatest. He kind of held his own. But, you know, it's someone that I've always felt like had, you know, four pitches that you know, would work at a, you know, pretty kind of any setting. And, you know, I think there were moments last year before maybe he dealt with some erratic stuff uh, at the end of the season where it, it looked like somebody who'd be a viable reliever. So I, I think that gives them a little bit of more medium leverage beyond just the names that are known uh, before you start talking about more of the, the camp flyers or the, the rule five pick that the Nick Avila who might make the team and maybe guys that you're not as comfortable as elevating to higher leverage. But I, I think they have four or five guys in there that, generally they're comfortable going with a, a late inning situation, even without Hendricks. So I guess the big positional questions would be second base and right field, right? And they've been questions for a while. The White Sox have the worst second base projection of any team. They have the second worst right field projection of any team. And they had one of the least productive outfields and, and most defensively limited outfields in baseball last season. So You've added Andrew Benintendi to the mix, and you're getting some of the more defensively limited guys out of the outfield. There's Oscar Colas, there's Gavin Sheets. Uh, is there going to be some sort of acquisition still at either of these positions? And if not, how do you see them shaking out? Everything's pretty cleared for the idea that Oscar Colas is going to like take over as like the starting right fielder uh, as soon as possible and certainly long term. They, they that was pretty much the messaging from the GM meetings that they were not going to go out and get a right fielder, but you know basically clear the way for Colas. I think if he struggles um, or if there's certain matchups they like, uh, even though they're both left-handed, you might see Gavin Sheets doing a little bit of right field. Or I, I certainly think against left-handers, they could match up where they sit Colas and put Eloy out there for his his day or two in in right field. But it's pretty much banked on the idea that Colas is major league ready and can you know be kind of a Probably more a power over hit, especially as a rookie, but, you know, someone who obviously can defend the position and is more of a natural outfielder than any other candidate they've had out there for a couple of years now. At second base, they have been kind of, it's definitely been the place where they've been more active in, in trade talks. And, you know, Rick Hahn definitely, uh, you know, indicated that the door is not closed in that entirely at any point, but, it, you know, it gets certainly less likely as the season draws near and they've been slowly pumping up Romy Gonzalez as, as the person that they would, you know, he, he spent, I feel like half of this coaching staff under Pedro Grifolo is all from Miami. So Romy Gonzalez out there, he, he worked with like their new field coordinator, Mike Tozar all, all winter. He's, he's someone they've been, they kind of gave a strange amount of heavy playing time to when they were still fighting for their playoff spot last year, even when they still had Josh Harrison. It's someone they kind of believe in, even though last season was very much a wash. And at this point, his major league statistics look like somebody who has a lot of plate discipline issues and will have trouble getting on base. This this is kind of the, the, the organizationally they've kind of searched for power whenever they can find it. And, you know, after he had kind of his breakout 2021 season where he showed like this 2020 power and speed combination, 
they they've been optimistic on them. And it seems like they're in a position right now to more or less hand them the second base job with Lennon Sosa kind of having an outside chance of, of, of resting away with the big spring training. I don't want to give short shrift to arguably their largest offseason addition, not in terms of his stature, but in terms of the size and, and length of his contract, which is Andrew Benintendi. And I'm curious, like, how did they settle on Benintendi as their guy? Because it's not that he had a bad season last year, you know, at least at the plate he had his highest WRC plus since that really great 2018 campaign with Boston. But like the defense seems like it's slipping and there's never been a ton of power, but he does get on base at a good clip. He got more money than I anticipated him getting and not just because everyone seemed to get more money than I anticipated them getting in this offseason. So how'd they land on Benintendi and what are they what are they expecting out of him? I mean, you say settling on Benintendi. I would say uh, completing... When was he drafted? 2015? So eight years of thirsting after him, uh, relentlessly. <laughs> he was taking one spot ahead of uh, Carson Fulmer, and they were they were definitely kind of waiting for him to maybe dangle down. I don't think that's the right verb, but moving on. <laughs> um, they, they wanted him in the Chris Sale trade way back when, uh, you know, late 2016. Talked about him at the deadline last year. Uh, this is someone they've kind of, you know, lusted after, uh, which – Again, it's not feeling like a good verb. It just feels <laughs> gross. Uh, this is someone they wanted for a long time. This is you know someone they definitely believe in his skill set beyond just you know professional singles hitter. They they think his power will probably play a little bit better sure. uh, at a sneaky great park for left-handed power, which you wouldn't know because the White Sox haven't really had much. <laughs> more than to play to Kauffman Stadium, they're obviously you know. The number of times I've heard heard you know Andrew Benintendi referred to as a Gold Glove left fielder since he signed would you know lead me to believe that they view him as a bit rosier than someone whose defense is, is slipping based on you know you know some metrics of, of recent. This is someone they view as kind of like this this really good overall you know, player, and you know I would say he got more years than I expected, more than maybe the AAV. I, that's really how they're able to really separate their offer from from the Yankees, and sure, and also not you know go over a, a big AAV since they did a lot of work talking about how little budget room they had going into the offseason. So I, I think it kind of threaded the needle for them a little bit of they didn't have to give this, you know, this is when somebody they had to give $20, 25000000 million a year to. But, uh, you know, it was young enough that maybe you don't feel as queasy as giving them five seasons. This this is this is someone they view as like the, you know, do everything, good at everything type of guy. He's not... Uh, you know, a stud power hitter. He's not necessarily someone that you would thought is going to hit, you know, compete for the batting ten. Only maybe a 280, 290 projection is, is more reasonable take for him, but they view him as not having a major weakness. And if there's something that's been an issue for White Sox position players, you know, especially when they're being thrown out to, you know, play left field when they're first baseman, or it's, it's that they have some kind of glaring weakness that, you know, makes their strengths uh, kind of get canceled out. Uh, ben Attendi is someone that can kind of plug in left field and then not worry about uh, for a bit. And they really haven't had that, unfortunately. We maybe should have brought this up earlier when we were talking about all the injuries, but on the Twins preview pod, we asked whether the Twins were making any changes to their training staff or methods because their season was sort of derailed by injuries last year too. 
So are the White Sox doing anything in terms of new personnel or new training techniques? Because for them, it's just so crucial because there's just not a lot of organizational depth and not a lot of help near the majors on the farm system. And just having a healthy Robert and Jimenez and Moncada and Grandal <laughs> Anderson, that makes or breaks their season, basically. Yeah, if you want to like... um really upset a White Sox fan, I think if you just say the phrase, just stay healthy, you know, that would probably be enough to get them going. They're, they're a team that's, I think, at least two or three years running now has had to think like, well, if we're just healthy, we'll be so good when they're right. like the team that struggled the most at staying healthy. It's, it's kind of like pitchers saying like, I just need to improve my fastball command, which is like, oh yeah, the, the primary currency of who and who isn't good uh, in baseball, I'll just get some more of it and then I'll be good to go. Yeah, they, they've uh, they've been talking about adding a, a sports performance department or a sports science department uh, for a couple of years. And, you know, this offseason, they finally made the uh, hire of someone who's specifically going to work at the major league level. In the last few years, they both, I think James Kruk, their trainer, I want to say his first year was maybe 2021. Was at, was his, he kind of took over the job in 2020, but his first official full-time place in the role was 2021. Their uh, director of conditioning, Goldie Simmons, his first real year was 2022. And, you know, speaking to him, I think he certainly felt that his first year being the lockout didn't really give him the opportunity to maybe do the work in the offseason that would have meaningful returns over the course of the year. So this kind of, in a sense for him, is his first real offseason of getting to work and monitor everybody over the course of the year. So there's there's new people in place even if it wasn't just like a, a you know a house cleaning after last year where they have some reasonable confidence that things are different or, or the, the people they've installed are having their first real opportunities to have an impact in some way that they were expecting to be healthier but we'll see uh it, it kind of has to be proven um i don't know if no one getting hurt in the off season is, is some evidence of it but it it's it's better than the alternative we probably talk more about additions than subtractions on these previews, but there was a notable departure in Jose Abreu, who is basically the soul of the team, right? And there's a quote from Jimenez about, you know, when he was asked who was going to be the new leader in Abreu's absence, and he said, I don't know, I don't have the answer to that. Maybe the answer to that just organically arises uh, during spring training or as the season starts, and maybe if you're winning, it's not that big an issue, but... Was there much consideration given to bringing Abreu back, even though there were some positional conflicts there? And what is the level of concern about the clubhouse post Abreu? It's funny, like I saw like fan like angry about the projections being like, how can they we be so down when we have the same team back? I was like, well, like you did lose the guy that every projection system like thinks is the best player every single year. So that, <laughs> that's probably a lot. No one had more stable projections than Abreu because he played all the time. So his playing time never bounced around and he yeah. always had the same season and now right. it's gone. But yeah, I, I think there was real thought to like not when Abreu was brought back for the three-year deal post um, 2019, that was kind of viewed as the, well, we don't know how this is going to go because really we kind of had the plan of succession, you know, set away that like, you know, we, we kind of planned on LA Meta's becoming, you know, we could forecast him becoming a DH pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, and we expected him to be the kind of the heart of the order guy that Abreu was. And they had just drafted Andrew Vaughn, who they viewed as being someone who would be quickly rise and take over first base. Certainly over the life of that three-year contract was something they expect. They kind of thought they were creating a log jam uh, when they did bring him back. And, and a lot of that was kind of driven by the fact that like, well, he's so central. He's to the team. He has this leadership role. 
But also at the time, post-2019, you kind of thought that he was declining uh, in a way that was going to you know, make things awkward, where instead things were awkward because Abreu, you know, won MVP in 2020, was still pretty good in 2021 and, and very good and even maybe reinventing himself a little bit to have more longevity, whereas plate discipline jumped up even as, uh, you know, he's affected by the same power hitting virus that, uh, you know, claimed the rest of the clubhouse all last yeah. year, where now you're kind of erasing this level of offensive ability that no one really rose up and provided in the last three years, even though you kind of expected this team to be more built around Mancata and Menez and, and Luis Robert and Andrew Vaughn uh, than it really was uh, last season. So, yeah, I, I think it's a big consideration, but I think the way how poorly the team played, how unable they were to kind of get motivated or ever turn things on or, or, or you know, find this level of where their approach locked in, where the defense locked in, kind of spoke to the idea of like, well, why are we going to preserve, continue to jam up our roster for the sake of, you know, the idea that Abreu is a you know, great leader and as much as he is a respected clubhouse president, it wasn't this magic bullet that was making everything better on its own. So we kind of need to re if we think that this is forcing us to play Eloy Menes in the outfield too much or forcing us to put Andrew Vaughn out of position or, you know, even making it hard to work in Gavin Sheets into good matchups that this is still something we need to move on from to, to free up the younger players in our roster to take over and, and kind of be the driving force of the team that we need them to be. And it's not like this current situation is working in some way that we have to preserve it. So I think that was a bit of the logic. Also the fact that like they didn't really have much money and Abreu had earned himself a big contract and he got it from the Astros. And I think if they had committed to that, that would pretty much have eaten up the budget room they were able to have for Benintendi or the budget room that they uh, wound up spending and possibly a very foolhardy manner on Mike Clevenger, which were both pressing needs at the time. And they viewed that they could absorb the loss of a big first baseman and readjust things to uh, replicate it while also being freed up to to get the outfield they needed to get a starting pitcher that they needed. And and that's what wound up being the path they took. All right. So last question. We know you're not an easy grader, no participation trophies being handed out here on this segment, but what do the White Sox need to do for this season to be considered a success? How should they define success? That could be at the big league level. It could be in the system. What signs of progress have to happen for everyone to declare this a successful White Sox season when all is said and done? bringing it full circle with some size at the end just like at the beginning so part of the reason why i think their fan base is uh in the mood that it is in is that they got promised a lot they got a lot of talk about multiple championships they got a lot of talk about how you know this the white Sox basically sold 2016-2017 at least bet at the time we had not seen a team that had like Two friendly rotation starters locked up on a really team friendly deals, and you know even at the time, you know Adam Eaton was a was a big trade asset. We had not seen a team that had that level of like core in place with that level of value stripped out, and so this was supposed to be this big rebuild that set them up for for good for the long term. That they're going to be you know a dynasty the way the Astros have become, where they're you know annually in the playoffs regularly, and, and you could have a five to six to seven to eight year competitive window where they have you know multiple world series appearances in that so i don't think there's really any way they can match up with the level of expectation they set 
And I, I think any reasonable standard would just be winning the Yale Central, getting back to the playoffs, winning a playoff series, being relevant in the late playoff discussion at all, I think would be a reasonable success to this team, certainly given what was actually put into this offseason, which was more two real major additions, uh, one which is now perilously fraught uh, around the core that it, where that's probably a reasonable expectation for them if everything goes right. I don't really think that given what they've sacrificed for this to be the competitive window, given the fact they kind of punted three years and hyped us up as a time where they'd be annual uh, contenders. I don't think just winning a division is really going to satiate their fans because, you know, they were promised a lot more, but I think just looking at this roster today and what they have, I think that if they won the AL central, if they won 93 plus games, I would certainly write that Pedro Gafol did a really good job with what he had. (laughs) And It'd be hard for me to give another F to the front office if you know the, the pieces <laughs> they put together delivered that. Like it's hard to win the divisions. I would know because I cover the White Sox and they don't, they haven't won that many. So <laughs> I think that's what a success is. I think winning a playoff series, they haven't won one since 2005. Even if they just get flattened in the ALCS by you know an Astros or a Yankees team that I think is a, a tier above them, I, I think that'd be a successful year. But Theoretically, given that they were 81 and 81 last year and really bad, maybe even worse from a, a run differential perspective, even just at winning 90 games and, and being a wildcard team or just being in the hunt all season long and, and just looking better would obviously be better. But I, there's this gulf between what they say their expectations were and what I think is actually reasonable to expect from the group that they've assembled, which is a lot more just, you know, win a bad division. I, I think that'd be a good year for them. Right. Well, we will see if going to summer school can help the White Sox salvage their GPA. You can read about (laughs) their studies all season long at The Athletic, and you can find James on Twitter at J.R. Fegan. James, thanks as always. I thought this had to end with me doing a prediction, or is that something we scrapped from last year? <laughs> yeah, we've scrapped it, but if if you've got one holstered no, and ready I, to go, I, I, I don't no, want to waste I'm, your... If I'm out, if, I'm, if I don't have to be wedded to some uh, prediction, I, I will definitely not do more than what's required of me. I will take. I will give a C-level performance where I do nothing above what is, the, uh, what is required. Okay, perfect. Okay, we will conclude with the Pass Blast, which comes to us from 1970 and from David Lewis, an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. David writes, 1970, Finley covers his bases. In 1970, ever-eccentric athletics owner Charlie Finley was, as UPI put it, at it again. In an effort to liven up opening day in Oakland, Finley requested and received permission from baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn to use bases painted a bright gold on a one-game trial basis. The experiment called for first, second, and third base, but not home plate, to be painted. Finley was quoted as saying, it should make players want to reach base more often. Which is an interesting hypothesis. Should it? The fact that the bases are painted gold uh, is the idea here that that we will fool the players into thinking that that they're gold and that they get to take the bases back with them. I don't know that it would make them want to reach base more often, but I guess it's pretty to look at. Continuing here, adding to the opening day spectacle, A's pitcher Jim Mudcat Grant was tapped to sing the national anthem, reportedly the first active player to do so. Finley evidently liked the experiment enough that he suggested colored bases as a permanent rule change at the 1970 winter meetings in December. This suggestion, along with a proposal to add a 20-second pitch clock, was ultimately rejected by the Playing Rules Committee. 
So Finley, he was uh, eccentric is a good word for it. He was uh, ahead of his time in some ways, and he was a showman and promoter, and he liked some sideshow elements, and he liked colors, uh, colorful uniforms, colored bases, uh, colored balls, right? Orange-colored baseballs was sure. another Finley initiative, but colored bases— I don't know. I mean, it's it's similar to today where we're talking about a change to the bases and an actual pitch clock. So Finley would probably be pleased about that. But I guess he would be disappointed that the bigger bases are still just plain old boring white and not bright gold. Yeah, I mean, wow. Wow, what would it? <laughs> <laughs> Could have had a, a even better photo op yeah. in Florida and Arizona earlier this week if the bases were not only bigger but bright gold. Gold, you, you know, a, a championship great... <laughs> bases. It's like yeah. when a it's like when a club wins the World Series and then their numbers get to have the gold outlining. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh well, boy, maybe someday. Maybe someday. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. RIP to Tim McCarver, who died on Thursday at age 81. 21-year playing career, two-time All-Star, two-time champion, even longer broadcasting career, 23 World Series called. I think I missed McCarver's prime as a broadcaster. People who heard him in the 80s rave about how insightful he was and prescient. In later years, when I heard him, I was not enamored of him at the time. And yet, just as with the late Joe Morgan, they formed a big part of the soundtrack of my childhood and my baseball education, so I'm grateful to them for that. I have sort of warm, fond memories of them now that I might not have expected 20-plus years ago when I found them frustrating at times. The late, great Roger Angel wrote about McCarver a couple of times, and when McCarver was retiring from national broadcasts, Angel wrote, Tim's intense, intelligent, deeply informed, excitable, verbose, folksy, intellectual, opinionated, and morally fervid participation in the events on the field inexorably takes hold of you, the listener, and pushes you into the adjoining seat where you can almost feel McCarver's jostling elbow and feel on your arm and elbow the heat of his eagerness for what's coming next. Angel also added, true, there may come little stretches of time when you really want to have Tim shut up and sit back. But as he also observed, he has been the exception, the strong flavor in a profession too often marked by blandness and cliche. Farewell to Tim McCarver, who in his broadcasting and his writing and other venues taught a ton of people how to watch and appreciate baseball. I did get a taste of the McCarver prescience in the 2001 World Series Game 7 when he identified the risk of drawing the infield in against Luis Gonzalez against Mariano Rivera seconds before the fateful blooper. Though as a Yankees fan at the time, I was not inclined to congratulate him on that call. Also in case you missed it, Fangraphs added Negro League stats to its website this week. So I will link to where you can find those on the show page. These have already been available at Seamheads and Baseball Reference, but to have them at Fangraphs is great. Didn't want to neglect that wonderful addition to the site. And I do have one amendment to make to something I said earlier this week. Two episodes ago, I talked about a 1937 proposal in the sporting news to use cameras to take pictures of, say, close plays at first base and then develop them as quickly as possible, kind of like a photo finish at a racetrack. And so I was joking about having a bang-bang play at first and then waiting 10 to 15 minutes to develop the film so that you could get a look at whether the runner was safe or not. Well, prompted by an email from listener Peter and also some of my own research, I will note that it actually would have been possible to get those photos ready more quickly because that proposal was made, I believe, in September of 1937. And in late July of 1937, there was a historic advancement made in racetrack photo finishes, which could be what probably 
prompted that suggestion in the sporting news. Bing Crosby, who later became co-owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates, was a founding partner of the Del Mar Thoroughbred Club, which operated from the Del Mar Racetrack in Del Mar, California. And when it opened in 1937, July 31st, it employed an innovative kind of camera, a strip camera developed by Lorenzo Del Riccio, who is an engineer for Paramount Pictures, which used a vertical slit that focused solely on the finish line and moved at the same speed as the horses, so you could get a clear image and also an image of the horses at the right part of the track. And in most cases, results could be determined in under a minute, as a makeshift darkroom was also located in the stands. So there you go, as of mid-1937, perhaps it would have been viable to use a similar method to judge umpires' calls on a baseball field and get a prompt result. Under a minute, that might be faster than some replay reviews. Don't want to impugn the photographic technology of the late 1930s. Our next preview episode will feature the Brewers and the Marlins, so that will lead off next week. For now, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, get themselves access to some perks, and help us stay ad-free. Hamish McNichol, Sean Presley, Jonathan Daw, Larry Glosh, and Darren Jones. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, as well as monthly bonus episodes and playoff live streams and discounts on ad-free Fangraphs membership and other merch and goodies. Do us and yourself a favor by checking out patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon website. If not, you can email us at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild separate at r slash effectivelywild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk to you early next week. Could I pester you to mute your your phone or notification or whatever it was? Yeah, I, I don't feel... really know how to do that, but I, oh, it's, okay. on my, it's on my <laughs> laptop. It's not on my oh, I see. phone. And so oh, okay. Like, I heard I... it and I was like, oh. Yeah, I feel anal asking. It's just, oh no, we we get uh, (laughs) commenters who are like, oh, I enjoyed the preview, but uh, so and so's phone kept going off or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Commenters, I'm not, I am one of the younger beat, well, not anymore. I'm one of the, I'm in the middle beat writers, but some of this stuff escapes me. I'm looking right now. Hold on a second. And then, oh, there it is again. I don't even know what the hell. Um, Oh. It was Jordan Schusterman who just texted me too. Oh, and, Jordan. Um, so, anyways, yeah, I'm gonna need you guys to come in and show me how to turn my notifications back on, <laughs> on my laptop. <laughs>